Amen. Hey, we're in Galatians chapter 3. We'll be finishing up Galatians chapter 3 and then also uh, getting into the first seven verses of uh, Galatians chapter 4. Really, we're just going to be hanging on about three verses in Galatians chapter 4, so I'm going to cover a ton of territory this morning, but I'm going to do so very quickly. So I just want to encourage you to jump in. Uh, if there are things if there, if there are things that I don't address in the text, I would encourage you to go and find answers, to look for answers, to elbow your neighbor and ask them if they can help you figure some of these mysteries out. Meredith and I had the opportunity to actually sit next to Peter and Aaron Craig, the, the mom and dad in the video in Nashville a couple years ago. We didn't know them. I had no idea that this was their story. Uh, but I've been following uh, their, he is the filmmaker for Moving Works, this company. And so I've been looking at their stuff and I get emails here and there. And I was thinking to myself, man, like, I, I wonder if there's a way that we could visually tell this story of adoption. Uh, in such a way that just makes it come alive. So I got on Moving Works, and sure enough, I didn't realize that they were adoptive parents and that that was their story. So I went looking for a video on adoption on their site, and sure enough, it was, it was them. Um, as powerful, like I said in my prayer, as powerful as human adoption is, it's a shadow of the triumph of our spiritual adoption into God's family. So what we're going to do this morning, we're just going to jump in. I believe it's on uh, page 419 in the Black Bibles around the room. Is that right? Is that right? 914. I was transposing my numbers there. Page 914 in the black Bibles around the room. Please open the scriptures. Open your own Bible if you brought it. Open uh, an app if you've got it on your phone. I want you to interact with God's eternal word. Uh, we're going to spend, like I said, the majority of our time in chapter 4. So how many of you know uh, the song? How many of you church kids know the song Father Abraham? Yeah, there's a handful of you, right? You want to sing it for me? Somebody start. Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Woo, woo, right? And then that song keeps going. That song, as goofy as it is for church kids, it teaches us a really, really important uh, truth. And it's the truth that Paul is actually explaining in Galatians chapter 3. He's, what he's explaining to the churches in Galatia who have been infiltrated by false teaching that says, believe in Jesus, yes, and work. And when those two things come together, when your works come together, then you will be saved. What Paul is doing is he's actually in chapter 3, he's walking the Galatians through about 2,000 years of Old Testament history. He's trying to set them on solid ground. So he's trying to show them how Abraham, the father of Israel, and Moses, this prophet of Israel and giver of the law, and Jesus, how do these three work together? How, do, how does Jesus fulfill God's promises to Abraham, how is he the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, but also how is he the fulfiller of Moses' law, and then how does it all culminate in Jesus Christ, and what in the world does it mean for us? So we're going to jump in. Um, I want to just show you briefly how the law and the promise of salvation given through Abraham uh, work together. Uh, and what I'm going to do, we're going to put um, some scripture up on the screen for you this morning. It's, it's Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29, I believe. But it's going to be in the New Living Translation. So when I first started this series, I said, as we start to approach the, the latter half of Galatians chapter 3 and, and then into Galatians chapter 4, Paul's going to start to get into some more complex arguments that sometimes in our word-for-word -word translations can be really hard for us to get our minds around the arguments. So I encourage you to go for a more thought-for-thought -thought translation in 
order to get your heads and get your hearts around these arguments that Paul is bringing up, and then use that to then spring into the Bible text that you normally use, or use your study Bible, use helps, don't be afraid of any of that. So we're just going to run through, I'm going to do some running commentary on Galatians uh, chapter 3, 15 through 29 in the New Living Translation. This is what Paul says to the church. Dear brothers and sisters, here's an example from everyday life. So think of like a will. Think of someone who has passed away and left a will. If that will stands, nobody can come in and change it. Think of this, what he's about to say with a will in mind. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, such as a will, so it is in this case. God gave the promises of a land and a people to Abraham and to his child. That word for child there is singular. It means seed in the Hebrew. And, and Paul says, and notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children as if it meant many descendants or seeds. But what Paul says here, rather it says to his child. And then Paul explains who that child is. And that, of course, means Christ. Paul, this is what I'm trying to say. The agreement that God made with Abraham about 500 years before he gave the law to Moses, it couldn't be canceled 430 years later after Israel's exile through the desert when God gave this law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise. For if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. The way of grace outdates and precedes the way of the law. Why then was the law given, Paul says? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. So the law was actually given to humanity to define our sin, to show us our sin, to set us, to set a standard. But the law, Paul says, was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. Now, a mediator, Paul says, is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement. But God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. Is there a conflict then? He anticipates, he anticipates here uh, some objections. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? God's law given by Moses, God's promises given to Abraham? Absolutely not, he says. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. If we could be made righteous by our works, then that would be the case from the law. But Paul says in verse 22, But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin, so we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. He's developing an argument that he's been developing over the course of Galatians chapters 1 and 2. Verse 23, Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept almost like in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian or our tutor until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. Martin Luther would say in the Protestant Reformation, he would say the law essentially takes us to faith in God and his mercy. It drives us in need to Christ. It's ultimately revealed in Christ when he would come. But Israel, as they were living according to the law, they were, they, they were looking out to this future descendant, this future Messiah, but yet still depending upon the mercy of God. Verse 26, for you are all children. That word there in the Hebrew is actually sons. It's important. Sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ. It's like putting on new clothes. 
We're clothed. The scriptures, the New Testament will say we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children, the offspring of Abraham. You are his heirs, heirs of this promise. And God's promise to Abraham, Paul says, belongs to you. So the Galatians are living their lives according to the letter of the law. They are looking at their obedience. They are depending upon their obedience in order to be justified or in order to be counted righteous. And Paul's argument here, it takes them even further back than Moses in the history of God's redemption in order to show them that that it's through faith in Christ alone. And so Paul here is urging that this faith in Christ alone has its roots in the father of the Hebrews himself, Abraham. And the law that has come through Moses has come not to overshadow this promise given to Abraham, but actually to keep Israel in the lane of faith, so to speak, by showing them their need for dependence upon God's mercy. So I was trying to think about, like, how would I, how would I just try to bring this all the way to the ground and make it understandable to a, to a really young mind? Thinking, the first thing that came to my mind was bowling bumpers. The law is a bit like bowling bumpers in the sense that it shows you that you're not that good, first of all, right? But bowling bumpers also keep you in the game right? What they do is they humble you, but they help you participate. They help you continue to move forward. And the law in some ways was like that. Now, because Jesus Christ has opened the way of salvation more widely and more broadly to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, Paul introduces here this so not boring doctrine of adoption. No doctrine is boring when it is derived from the word of God, but the, 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 the doctrine of adoption, when truly embraced, when fully embraced, it will change your life. And so I want to just hang out on some of the last verses in chapter 3, as well as some of the, the text in chapter 4 right at the, the very beginning. And I'm going to frame it all out like this. Understanding spiritual adoption, it will change your entire life. Like I was just touching on, don't ever be afraid of the word doctrine. Doctrine simply means the summary of a subject. It's got kind of a bad rap in our culture today because people have taken doctrines and then, and, and then so abused people over those doctrines. And yet, doctrine is simply... It, It's a neutral word. It means the summary of a subject about any given thing, okay? The doctrine of justification by faith. Remember I said a couple of weeks ago, Jared, like five, six, seven sermons on on the doctrine of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone. Can we please move on? To which we said, no, 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 like Paul doesn't move on. You'll find it interesting in Galatians that Paul does not give us a single imperative, meaning Paul does not tell us to do or tell the Galatians to do a single thing until the first verse of chapter 5 in Galatians. The first four chapters in their entirety are Paul trying to unpack for the Galatians what God has done for them. No response is actually necessary. You've got to receive this. And as we receive this from God, then he begins to move in our hearts and produce a work through us. So the doctrine of justification by faith means that God thinks of our sins as forgiven and he thinks of Jesus' righteousness as belonging to us. And this doctrine of justification also declares that all who depend on Christ are righteous in God's sight. It's instant 
It's complete. It's a declaration, a legal declaration by God saying something about us that can never be undone even by our own works. Now, the doctrine of adoption is even more grace poured out on his people. Adoption, this is what adoption is. Adoption is an act of God whereby he makes us members of his own family. So we're not just talking about forgiveness and being kept on the outside. Now we're talking about actually being brought into the family of God, brought into the heart of God. Anytime you see the word children, anytime you see the word uh, adoption as sons or the phrase adoption of sons in the New Te- as sons in the New Testament, the authors, what they're doing is they're pointing to adoption. We're not forgiven outsiders. We're sought after and made insiders by the power of God according to his will which Paul said in Galatians chapter 1. This is all according to the will of our Father. What does it mean that it's according to the will of our Father? It means that he wants us. He wants to do this. He's not bearing with you and begrudging you. He is seeking after you because he wants you. He has set his saving love upon you. And so now because of that, we are made children. We are made heirs never to be regarded as anything else. There are a number of ways that adoption should comfort and empower us. Look at verse 326. All who are justified in Christ in Christ, are forever and full children. Let that hang on you. All who are justified by faith in Christ through grace are forever and full children. Verse 326. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through what? Through faith. You are all what of God? Sons of God through faith. Our work in justification, it's passive work. What that means is we don't actually do anything to accomplish justification. Justification is is to be received by us. It's a declaration. It's something that God gives. And our only true response is to hold out empty hands and to take it in and to receive it. It's God who justifies, Paul would write to the Romans, who is then to condemn Condemnation is the opposite of justification. That's why in Romans 8, chapter 1, he'll say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are justified fully, finally, complete, there is never any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, when it comes to our adoption as well, our adoption is also passive work. We don't make ourselves any more adopted than Turfe made herself adopted. As, Paul, or as Peter and Aaron sought her out in the video. Peter and Aaron sought Turfe at great cost and effort. And what was their motivation? It was love. Love motivated them. And in the very same way, your father seeks after you at great cost, the perfect life, the brutal death of his own flawless son. Paul would write to the Ephesians, in love, he predestined you for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Additionally, and this is important, we're all counted as, quote, sons. So turn your attention to chapter 3, verse 15 in Galatians. If you're in the ESV, you're going to notice there's this word brothers. It says this word brothers. But right after that word brothers, there's a little footnote that will direct you to the bottom of your page, and it will say brothers and sisters. He's using the Greek word adelphos, which signifies siblings and a family. In the New Living Translation, translation, they just said it that way, brothers and sisters. So the audience, the people that Paul is speaking to right now are men and women, brothers and sisters. So 
as he's addressing men and women, now he's saying we're all adopted as sons. We're all in Christ Jesus. We're all sons of God through faith. What does that mean? Does that mean that all people now are going to be made male? Or does that mean that it's preferable to be male and less preferable to be female? Or women need to be made into men? Or that will happen at some point? Not at all. What Paul is doing here is he's using the first century inheritance language of ancient Rome. He's speaking and thinking of adoption in the legal sense according to the inheritance laws in Rome. Look at what Timothy Keller says about this. It'll be helpful. Timothy Keller says, Many take offense at using the masculine word sons to refer to all Christians, male and female. But if we're too quick to correct the biblical language, we miss the revolutionary nature of what Paul is saying. In most ancient cultures, daughters could not inherit property. Therefore, quote, son meant legal heir, which was a status forbidden to women. But the gospel tells us we are all sons of God in Christ. We are all heirs. Similarly, the Bible describes all Christians together, including men, as the bride of Christ, Revelation 21. So what Timothy Keller says here is that God is even-handed in his gender-specific metaphors. Men are part of his son's bride, and women are his sons, his heirs. If we don't let Paul call Christian women sons of God, we miss how radical and wonderful a claim this is. You see what Paul is doing here. That's proof. Look at verse 28. There are no second-rate citizens in the kingdom of God. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's speaking of our equality before the Father. He's speaking of our rights before the Father as sons and daughters. He gets rid of these, these socioeconomic and gender distinctions that would have us separate from one another. What, the, what it means that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor free, female, is that we no longer have any distinctions. We absolutely still have distinctions, but as we are in the family of God, Turfe is no less a son or a daughter than her natural-born sibling is. Does that make sense? And so that's what Paul is wanting to get at with this text. This text has been misused in a number of ways. And that's why whenever we look at the scriptures, we need to read the scriptures in their context. We can't just pull verses out like this and hang them on their own, but we need to look at what comes before and we need to look at what comes after so that we know what the original author and his intent was in that text. So there are no second-rate citizens in the kingdom of heaven. We're all united in Christ as real siblings in a real family. Look at verse 29. Our inheritance as heirs relies upon the promise of our Father, not upon our own works. And if you are Christ's, if you belong to him, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, Abraham's spiritual offspring where God has sought us out, where God has justified us through Christ and adopted us in his family, we're heirs according to his work. All right, if I'm an heir, what does that mean for my inheritance? What does my inheritance look like? We were all orphans, as as Peter and Aaron spoke in the video earlier, alienated from God, but now we have an eternal father. I have an eternal father who seeks me out and loves me like he loves Jesus himself. I also have inherited an eternal family made up of a multitude of diverse people from every age, every nation, every language, every ethnic heritage, and it doesn't stop there. I have an eternal promise of an eternal home where the presence of sin will no longer be reality. I will live in the presence of God and under the blessing of God forever and ever. 
Heaven is a place of total flourishing and ultimate refuge, and the one who governs it is our Father, your Father. Another benefit of adoption. Look at verses 4 through 6. Look at the Trinitarian nature of our adoption here. Verse 4 of chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth who? His son, Jesus, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And now look. And because you are sons, God has sent whom? The Holy Spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to do two things, to redeem us, so that we might also receive adoption. Remember, adoption is passive. God seeks us and finds us. Trinitarian work. The Father administrates, the Father plans our redemption, the Son accomplishes our redemption, and the Holy Spirit's and communicate and, and com- he, he <laughs> tongue-tied, tongue-tied, and the Holy Spirit applies and communicates our adoption. The Father plans it and administrates it, the Son accomplishes it, and the Holy Spirit applies and communicates our adoption. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Another benefit of adoption, look at verse 6. The Spirit of God has taken up residence in our hearts. He sent the Spirit of His Son, where? Into our hearts, into us, taking up residence within us, which cries, Abba, Father. So what this means is the Holy Spirit continually intercedes. And in his work in adoption, he's teaching us to see and to relate to our Father as our Father. Not distant, but near. Intimate. The same Spirit who empowered Jesus starting at his baptism and then raising him from the dead lives within you and I. The very same Holy Spirit, all of him, the fullness of God, dwelling within us. And he does something. The Holy Spirit does something special in us in adoption. Paul says the Spirit cries loudly within us, Abba, Father. That word for cry is, is, is meant to illustrate a child yelling for a parent. The, the Holy Spirit creates a kind of compulsion within us to cry out to God, Abba, Father. With that poignant Illusion, Paul holds out to us this breathtaking truth. Listen to this, that we Christians are all given the very relationship with the Father that Jesus Christ has always enjoyed. We are all given the very relationship with the Father that Jesus Christ has always enjoyed. That is to say, God is my Father, I am his child, and he is my hero. Last week, as we were, uh, as we were done with our gathering and just kind of packing up, there was a kid that was running around, and he was running fast, and he tripped right over here. And I was standing right next to him, and he tripped, and he fell, and he just bashed his head against one of these metal legs on the chairs, and it just made a sound. Like, everybody stopped, and I was right there. He was right in front of me, so I just reached down. I scooped him up into my arms, but he was like, I don't know what to do. He was kind of like Turfay when her mom first picked her up out of the crib. Like he didn't know what to do with me, but his mom was standing right there. So I handed him off to his mom and then he was comforted. He wanted his mom. Just a couple of days ago, my daughter Jenny tripped and fell down a couple of stairs and hurt her foot. And she starts yelling and I'm just a couple of stairs below her. So I turn back around and go up. I scoop her up into my arms. I grab her. And what does she do? She buries her head into my chest comforted by her dad. 
The Spirit of God awakens that nearness and that reality into our own hearts. Jesus called the Father Abba just before he was crucified. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, if you would, let this cup pass for me. He, called, he said, Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic word for dad. It's a, it's a, it's a term that, that denotes intimacy and closeness. We, too, call the Father Abba because we also have been crucified with Christ and we have God as our Father. Christ, who makes our justification and adoption possible, he was also uniquely qualified. Look at verse 4 of chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, think about this in terms of human adoption. Parents wait. There's a time that, that passes. It's, it's difficult. Things need to progress. But when the fullness of time had come throughout Old Testament Israel's history, God sent forth his son at just the right time, born of woman, born under the law like all other people, so that we might receive passive adoption as sons. There can never be another Jesus Christ. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't is the God-man. Which one is it? Did God send his eternal pre-existent son, or was Jesus born of a woman? Which one was it? The answer is yes. The answer is both, right? Theologians use this, this fancy language. It's, you may have heard of it before. It's called hypostatic union. Have you ever heard the term hypostatic union? Hypostatic union essentially means one Jesus, two different natures. Fully God, fully man. Not half God, not half man. Fully God, fully man. And this confused everybody in the first few centuries. It still confuses us. It's still hard to get our own heads around. Jesus, like, how old are you? Well, it depends. On my mother's side, I'm 12, right? But on my father's side, I'm eternal. Right? Like, think about it. Like, on my mother's side, I get hungry. On my father's side, I feed a multitude. I am the bread of life. On my mother's side, I get thirsty. But on my father's side, I'm the living water. On my mother's side, I get tired, fall asleep in a boat. On my father's side, I command the wind and the waves to silence. My mother's side, I've got no place to lay my head. My father's side, I own the earth and the fullness thereof. My mother's side, I wept at Lazarus' tomb, full of grief. My father's side, I raised him from the dead. Lazarus, come out. My mother's side, I was nailed to a cross in agony. My father's side, I was raised from the dead for the justification of all who would believe. There can never be another Jesus Christ. He wasn't only a good spiritual teacher. He was and is the God-man who was sent according to the Father's decree to come for us, laying down his life by his own accord that we might come into the family as adopted sons and daughters, heirs with an inheritance. More on inheritance. I just want to read this for you, and we'll close here. It should be on the screen behind you as well. What does God promise to his heirs? This is what he has promised to his heirs, all who believe in Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God in Galatians 5.21. He's also promised us eternal life in 6.8. He's promised us an, a new creation in 6.15. In Romans 
As he writes to the church in Rome, Paul says that believers will inherit the world. In the book of Hebrews, the inheritance is referred to as the city that is to come, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and a better country that is a heavenly one. But it's the book of Revelation that brings this biblical promise to a crescendo with its vision of a new heaven and a new earth. The holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. This is what God long ago promised to Abraham and to his seed, the reverse of the curse, the restoration of fallen humanity, the renewal of the whole creation. How do we become heirs according to the promise? This passage says that we must become Christ's. That means is we must relent of trying to earn our own righteousness before God. We must belong to him. We come to possess these precious and very great promises only by being ourselves possessed by Christ. Christ must own us. He must become ours and we his. How do we become his? Turn your attention to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. This is Peter was preaching to the people of Israel other people from nations that had assembled in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost, preached this first Christian sermon, Christocentric sermon to these people, and they were cut to the heart, and they said, what should we do? And Peter's response was, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And what will happen? You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Church, I hope that as we are thinking through, for those of you who are Christians, for those of you, especially for those of us who have been following Jesus for some time, I hope that this this emphasis on justification by faith, by grace, rather through faith in Christ, I hope it's causing you problems so far. Like, I hope it's unsettling you. Unsettling you enough to go, could it really be this true? Or would you just give me something to do? I just want to do something. Like we're hitting the pause button on just doing something for God so that we might for a moment recognize all that he's done for us. And as we recognize all that he has done for us, then our doing would flow from a place where our identity is secure in him, not secured based on our own works. So I can't actually give you something to do. Paul hasn't given you something to do here. All that I can give you is truth. There's not a single thing for us to begin doing according to Galatians until the fifth chapter. Everything that thus far that we have read in Galatians has to do with renewing our minds and renewing our thinking. So this morning, our work is this. It's to receive and it's to rejoice in the truth of our spiritual adoption. The point of this passage, the point of this section, covered it minimally this morning. But the point is that we are not orphans. We are adopted sons and daughters, full-fledged citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and we are children of our Father. And that is the truth that stands far more true than anything that you would say over yourself. What God declares over you supersedes anything that you say over you. So our work this morning is to receive grace, to recognize our justification, and we're not just held at an arm's length, but we're brought all the way in to the heart of our Father, straight into his family, into his household. Just like Turfe, by her human parents, so too are we 
by our Father. Father, would you help this truth settle in on us this morning? Would you help us to love the doctrine of adoption? It's like a 101 level this morning. It's just exposure. Would you make us students of it in such a way that it comforts our hearts and it brings truth to our minds? And when we're tempted to think that we're in and we're out, we're in and we're out, we're in and we're out, and we're, we're suffering from spiritual schizophrenia, would you heal that in us so that when we think about our security and our position with you, we understand that as we relent, repent of our sin, and throw all of our hope on Jesus Christ, that we are saved, justified, and adopted, and the work of sanctification now begins in us. We really can change because of your spirit within us continually crying out, my father, I need your help. My father, I believe, help my unbelief. In Christ's name, all of God's people said, amen.